Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed Himself through Scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant Word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. Genesis 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died at Carathath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead, and he said to the, he- the Hittites, I am a sojourner, a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I might bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. Well, as we continue our study in the book of Genesis, we come to an interesting passage of scripture. We've been watching this story unfold of Abraham and Sarah. And yet one of the truths that we find in scripture, we find true in our own lives, and that is there is a reality of life and death. Even in baptism this morning, one of the great symbolisms is being laid down in death, symbolized in the waters, knowing that our hope is not in this life, but in the newness of life which Christ provides. So even though we walk through difficult and heart-rending times, We find in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, For everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die. We've been tracking through Abraham's story as God has chosen one man and one family out of all the men, all the families of the earth, and called them to himself. So from Abraham's calling to the promises that God made and the promises God has kept, from Abraham's believing by faith to what Scripture gives us in a plain accounting of his sinful doubts and actions. It doesn't doesn't whitewash it and make him into some perfect man or quote-unquote saint. He's just like you and I. And yet, just like Abraham, you and I find our lives as part of God's greater plan for this earth, to put his glory on display. Therefore, our lives, therefore, our actions, even our deaths, testify to our faith. So if you look here in Genesis 23, at verse 1, we read of Sarah. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Abram went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep 
for her. According to scripture, Abraham and Sarah have been married over 60 years at this point. At least. And he goes to mourn the death of probably the most precious person on the planet. Isaac is this child of promise, and yet she is the one for the last hundred years that he has spent his life side by side with every day. It was their hearts, it was their lives, it was their families that heard the promise of God and anticipated the fulfillment of that promise. That for the past about 30 years has watched their son of promise grow in their old age. And so he mourns for her. He weeps for her. And I would say as we read that, friends, that's the correct response. One of the most annoying things is when Christians get overly spiritual, when we lose someone and then they they look to them and say, yes, but we know they're in heaven. We know they're in a better place. You shouldn't be weeping. No, it it is right that we should weep. In fact, this is the first time in Scripture that weeping and tears are mentioned. And it's in that context of the husband losing the most precious person to him, his wife. This is common to us, not just in ancient times, in Abraham's times, but in our times, there are predictable stages that all of us are going to go through in the stages of grief. There's the initial denial stage. There's shock. There's avoidance. I can't talk about it. I can't think about it. There's fear that comes in thinking about the future. And at some point, before I move on, can I just make, make a, a, just a, a pastoral chaplain comment? Uh, I think that's a really good thing. This is a gift from God. This entire thing is God's gift to humanity. Because sometimes people go through difficult times, and because we're not so smart, we say things like, oh, they're just in shock. Thank God. Like, that's God's good gift to them, that they might survive and get through the next couple days, things that need to happen to begin this grieving and healing process. And yet we don't stay there. We don't stay in that shock and denial. It usually moves on at some point to anger, frustration, irritation. Sometimes irritation with the person that we've lost. Sometimes irritation with God for allowing this to happen. And sometimes irritation with everybody around us because they happen to be around us. Anxiety. These are normal reactions that people have, that Abraham had, that you and I have. Bargaining. Sometimes this can be making a deal with God. The old adage, there's no atheists in foxholes. When everything is on the line, uh, we cry out to somebody. But also reaching out, reaching out to other people, reaching out to support system. Hopefully, uh, as a believer, reaching out to brothers and sisters in Christ who will encourage you, who will walk with you. We look in that moment uh, to find meaning. If I can find meaning, then I can, I can sort of make this trade. I can let go of this most precious person. But if I can't find meaning, I don't want to let go. And then generally it moves into depression. Just feeling overwhelmed feeling helpless and hopeless, sometimes uh, a desire to leave, that fight or flight, this is just flight. I, I just want to get out of here. If I, can, if I can leave and go someplace else, even though we know it's not true, I think I'll be better. And yet eventually, in fact, most doctors say this takes about two years before we reach this last stage of acceptance. 
we recognize we actually do have options going forward. We can make a plan. We can move on. Now this, this whole layout of the stages of grief comes from secular psychology, and yet our secular world really does not know what to do with human death. Or we could also say life, as far as that goes, because they have failed, more accurately refused to acknowledge the author and the giver of life, and therefore life and death make no sense. That means when a Christian dies, a Christian funeral stands apart from a secular memorial service. That secular memorial service is usually composed of, I love this person so much. This person was such a great person. We are having a celebration of their life. That's not a Christian funeral. A Christian funeral says this life points us to an everlasting life. This grief points us to the temporary nature of this world. We aren't just holding on to good memories. We are looking through those. We're looking past those to that which is even better, which is yet to come. That's what we see Abraham doing here. In fact, just hold on to that. The, the fact that he's going to bury her in the promised land and not take her home means he's looking to the promises of God. But we're going to end up there at the end. It's interesting in those moments for Abraham and for us, when we go through a traumatic loss, everything stops. Job stops. Plans stop. Everything, everything comes to a halt. But that's only for a time. It's only for a season. Even as we read in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, there, there's a season for this. There's a season for everything to stop, and there's a season for things to begin to move again. We see that example in Abraham, and again, I think this is God's good gift, that in that moment there are things to do. It is a common grace that in those times of loss, of tragedy, that there's activity that we actually need to continue doing. I, I mentioned it last week, the quote from Martin Luther, the great reformer, who, even though he had such a powerful impact on the Protestant church, suffered with deep and dark, crippling depression at times. And he said the only earthly remedy, apart from prayer, and meditation upon God's word is to busy one's hands with manual labor. Do something. Find something to do rather than just sit. And yet just sitting is our temptation, especially when we have sort of stopped in those stages of grief and we want to just hit pause. I just want to linger here. Maybe just allow that depression, which is normal, it's a normal reaction to loss and grief, and we want to just let that sink in. And I, I think I'm just staying here. I read the story of a, uh, actually, I didn't read it. I heard it in a biblical counseling training of a young lady who had gone through trauma and tragedy in her life. And as she was going through these stages of grief, she just sort of hit pause on depression. And it affected everything. It affected her and her husband's relationship, uh, her and her children's relationship. It, it affected their house. When you walked into their house, it was just chaos because I can't even think of doing anything about this. Now, most of us have been there at some point. I, I can't even think about this. My, my heart is so overwhelmed. But what happens when you stay there? Well, for her, it became so debilitating that she ended up being hospitalized, uh, unable to move. She was catatonic. 
And the doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with her. And so this biblical counselor, this pastor, this friend of theirs went to see her in the hospital. And he prayed with her, God, give grace. God, bring strength and healing. Now, there should be a little caution sign right here. All right, you ready? And then he rebuked her in her hospital bed. You have wallowed in self-pity, not trusting in the promises of God. Repent of your sin. Get up from this bed. Go home and clean your house. And the doctors went, oh, no. (laughs) We've got to step up our security coming into the hospital. You know what she did? She got up out of the bed and went home and cleaned her house, began to put her house back in order and reclaim life. Now, please don't start confronting everybody in a hospital bed and telling them they're lazy. What I'm saying is if you stop on this process, if you sink and wallow into self-pity, you can get stuck there. Friends, that's why we have the bones of the dinosaurs. They got stuck there. Just a thought. Now, it's not because everybody's lazy. Sometimes we are lazy in these moments. Sometimes it's just because life is difficult. Life is painful. Look at verse 3. Abraham rose up from before his dead. He's been weeping over her, sitting with her. Last precious moments with her. And he says to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner. I'm just traveling through. I'm a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. I think as we read this passage, it's important for us to take note, to understand the cultural context in which it was written. In the ancient times, it was considered a great honor to be able to give a proper burial to your loved one. It was a sign of love, respect, devotion. We see here Abraham exemplifying a deep love for his wife, Sarah. Jewish and Christian traditions especially have said because the body, because even our our physical being is made in the likeness and the image of God, even in death we have dignity and worth and value. And so the Jewish and Christian traditions have given great honor to the body where other uh, pagan societies have just discarded it as rubbish, as trash to be put aside, burned on the heap, or thrown into the large pit. As a chaplain, I've been on a lot of scenes where somebody has died. You know what I see every single time? And I I guarantee dad has seen the exact same thing and has not seen this. Has not seen anyone handling human remains in a casual, flippant, disrespectful way. First responders, when they come in, they're doing everything that they can to save that life. But when life has passed, treating that body with dignity and honor and respect. Coroners who come in and love the family and care for this body. Funeral home directors and and the people who work for them coming in and treating this body, uh, even even some of the most precious and intimate things. In fact, I had a couple of them written down as examples of this, and then I thought, no, I'm not telling you. 
Not because it's a great secret, but because it was one of the most private and intimate things that families have walked through. And their lost loved one was so well cared for that as someone who's just standing on the outside, it brought tears to my eyes. We honor men and women, even in death, made in the image of God. Even our modern version of cremation is not as the pagans would do, of just casually discarding the body as worthless. So often we have urns and memorials that we keep of them, or putting their ashes in a place that was precious to them. There's nothing casual about it. There's nothing casual as Abraham goes to the Hittites and asks for land. Look at verse 5. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. Listen to the honor that they give to Abraham. Remember at this time, he's got a very large household. He's got hundreds and hundreds of servants who work for him. Like when, when he's passing through his tents, it's a big deal. Hear us, my Lord. You're a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. All right. This sounds weird to us. Uh, A few weeks ago, we got a letter in the office from people who were wanting to sell burial plots at the cemetery that was going into Topeka. And we kind of thought it was, it's called the Eden Cemetery, because that's the township. We're like, these people are confused, and they think because we are Eden Worship Center that we have anything, we're like, we don't have anything to do with this. So I called them to say, "We, we don't have anything to do with it, we're not... You know, we're not part of that. And they're like, no, we've sent it to a bunch of churches and we're just, we're looking to sell these burial plots. Which was interesting because my wife and I are getting wicked old. So we had decided it was about time that we uh, start looking for burial plots. So we actually bought them. Now imagine if somebody comes and says, I've just lost a loved one. I'm like, look, I got a grave I'm not even using yet. Just put them in there. It's a, this is a really different society. You have to understand the culture and the place where this is happening. They were not burying a casket in the ground. They, they would more likely be laying a body in a tomb or a cave. Like something that is, is carved out, it's rock, it's stone, and then it's sealed so the animals can't get to it. And they would allow the body to decompose until all that remained was the bones then they would collect the bones and they put them in these ossuary boxes, which were about that big, by that, by about that tall. And they would keep them as a memorial. We actually have some of them, the, the high priest, when Jesus was tried, we have his. Like they found it just a couple years ago. Kind of, is it his or is it his father's? Now that I say it, I think it may have been his dad's. Anyways, a former high priest, we, we have it uh, even today. It's real similar to the urns as people uh, hold on to the remains of a loved one. So they're not saying, we want to use this forever. They're they're like, look, you're just passing through. This is temporary. Go ahead and use our tomb. We find an example of this in Exodus chapter 13, verse 19. As the people of God leave 400 years of captivity in Egypt, you remember what they took with them? The bones of Joseph. Joseph died 400 years Previously, yeah, Exodus 13, 19 says Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He said, God will surely come to your aid. Then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. 
The idea in ancient society was take me home. Take me to my people. How many times do we read in the Old Testament, he lived this many years and then was gathered to his people, gathered to his fathers. It's really, just on a side note, it's very interesting that this is one of the only biblical texts, even outside of the Bible, in ancient literature that details the negotiation of land and property, which is why secular scholars really are interested in Genesis 23. Because we find a whole uh, land negotiation and purchase deeding going on right here. And you don't find that in other literature. Uh, We get a snippet of it in 2 Samuel 24, uh, verses 18 to 25, where uh, King David buys the threshing floor and then builds an altar there. Uh, Just to give you an idea, every time I've heard threshing floor, I've thought... You know, just a, just a little workspace, uh, something to, to build there. Uh, the altar, that would be the place where the temple would go. He bought something gigantic on the, top, uh, on the top of the mountain of Jerusalem in the same thing. But we're only given part of the account there. Here we're given this interaction back and forth between Abraham and the Hittites. Did you hear the honor that they gave to him? A foreigner, an outsider. In this this back and forth, it almost sounds something like a verbal dance. It's this formality that they are going through. You are a prince of God among us, verse 4 says. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. In, In essence, what they say is, whatever you want, just take it. And yet he does not take it. He shows honor to them as well. Look at verse 7. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, And he said to them, if you're willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me. Treat for me Ephron, the son of Zoar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field for the full price. Let him give it to me in your presence as property for for a burying place. Verse 10, now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. And Ephron, the Hittite, answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, And of all who went in at the gate of the city, this is public, it's happening right at the gate of the city where all these sort of financial decisions and governing decisions were made. No, my Lord, hear me, he says. I give you the field. I give you the cave that's in it. Again, in the sight of of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. By the way, the, the humility of a guy like Abraham bowing down before them is almost unimaginable. And he said to Ephron, verse 13, in the hearing of the people of the land, if you will hear me, I will give you the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron and Abraham weighed out For Ephron, the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. The Hittites, thinking historically here, were a powerful and influential people in the ancient world. And it would have been easy for Abraham, also rich, also powerful, to come in and throw his weight around. But what he does a couple times is bow and humble himself before them. 
Instead of demanding, he negotiates and he shows them great respect. In fact, he negotiates poorly. If you go to this area of the world today, this is still how that culture uh, negotiates sales and prices. You start off with something ridiculously high and the person buying it says, that is way too high, I'll give you this much. And then the seller says, you insult me with that low price, but you're my friend and so I will give you this much. And this guy says, no, it's still way out of the league. And they just keep doing this until they get to a place in the middle. I can't even stand to go to a shopping mall, right? <laughs> right? Just tell me what the price is up front. Abraham doesn't even engage in the negotiation. They, they say, we'll give it to you. And he says, no, I'm going to pay for it. And then the price offered is actually ridiculously high for this. And yet it demonstrates Abraham's willingness to engage in respectful and peaceful dialogue, even with those who were really different from him, to whom he was an outsider who hold really different beliefs from him. Remember who's writing, kids, who's writing this book of Genesis? Yes, it is, it is God. That's a correct answer. But he's writing through a man. Who is, who is he using to write this book? Moses, that's right. I don't know who said it, but you got it exactly right. Moses is writing, and who's he writing it to? The children of Israel, right? The people who just came out of Egypt, who are about to go into the promised land. So what do you think God says to them about these people, the Hittites, before whom Moses is bowing down? Moses is negotiating with. Here's what he says, Deuteronomy 20, verse 17. You shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. That there is such idolatry, there's such wickedness among these people that I'm going to completely destroy them and give you their land. Friends, there's a valuable lesson for us today when we find ourselves in situations and interactions with people who are really different from us, who maybe believe something the complete opposite of what we believe, and we are tempted in that moment to get all self-righteous and testy. We should be reminded that Abraham didn't do that. He humbled himself. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't stand for what is right in our time, in our society. We do. But that doesn't mean every interaction calls for your hostility. It just irritates me when Christians get all hostile with sinners for being sinners. Seems like we've missed the point. In fact, it, when we look at our activity in the world around us, Christ's followers are actually called to be honest business people. It, just a few examples drawn from the principles we see here. It's done in public with authoritative witnesses. There, there's no backroom deals going on here. Verse 10 tells us it was at the gate of the city. Verse 11, 12, 13, and 16 say it's in the hearing of everybody. Everybody's hearing this. This is all above board. Number two, it's showing respect and honor to those you do business with. Abraham bows before them and Abraham follows their traditions. He doesn't demand that they do it his way. Number three, he is honest with his payment. Interesting, sort of, as you study through the Bible, you're going to come up against this phrase again and again, where it's like, according to the weights of the current merchants. 
I'm sure those of you who have spent time reading your Bible have run into this verse. I'm, I'm just going to give you one occurrence because it's over and over and over. Uh, in fact, you'll find this 15 different times in the Old Testament. Proverbs 11, verse 1. Dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord, but an accurate weight is his delight. Now, if you read that and you think about your diet, you're like, I'm all in favor of dishonest scales. <laughs> Lie to me, I'll believe it, right? Uh, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about in your business, as you're measuring out the goods that you're selling, be honest about it. As you're measuring out the payment that you're giving, uh, we're told that he has given uh, shekels of silver. What, what does that mean to us? Nothing. It's effectively 100 pounds of silver that he's making an exchange for, and so they get the weights out. And he's going to measure, because in their day, they didn't have coins that were all exactly the same. There was a lot of variation in their currency, and so they're measuring out 100 pounds of silver. By contrast, just to tell you how much Abraham is overpaying, a few hundred years later, remember I told you uh, David's going to do the same thing in buying this floor? He's going to buy most of Jerusalem for 50 shekels. Abraham is way overpaying for this, which has nothing to do with him being a bad business man because at this point he's proven himself to be actually really astute at that this is great honor for his wife great love for the one that he has lost just a note before we move on from that god's people are called to re reflect god's character in the way we do business how about this one coming up in the near future God's people are called to reflect God's character in the way they file their taxes. Amen. Verse 17. So the field of Ephron, I'm assuming his first name was Zach and we're not given that. <laughs> Just kidding. The field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field, the cave that was in it, all the trees that were... Can you hear the, the legal uh, land description that we're getting, given here? All the trees that were in the field throughout the whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave, the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is... In it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Consider with me just for a second the promises that we have been tracking in Abraham's life, and yet this grave, this tomb, is the only actual piece of property that he will ever own in the promised land. This is it. And yet today this tomb still exists. Abraham himself would be buried in it. Isaac, his son, would be buried in it. Jacob, his grandson, would be buried in it. Today, it is the second most holy site among the Jews. After the temple wall, the burial place of Abraham, because unlike most things, we know where it is. He came to the Hittites and he said, I'm a sojourner, I'm a foreigner among you. And yet when he leaves, he's a landowner. Yet for Abraham, this tomb was the only down payment on the inheritance that God had promised him, that he would have on this earth. Sometimes on this earth, we don't ever get the full story. 
we don't ever get the full picture. And yet this story isn't about a tomb, it's about a love story. Abraham and Sarah, the, the first great love story that we are given in the Bible. Abraham's great love and respect for Sarah is demonstrated by his willingness to pay a large sum of money for this cave. Again, giving dignity and honor even to her body. And the Bible gives Sarah honor as well. She is the only woman that the Bible is going to command us that we are to imitate her. The Bible doesn't tell us that of Mary, the mother of Jesus. There's nowhere there it says, imitate her faith. We're specifically told in two places that we have inheritance to her. She's the only woman in the Bible that we're told her name, her age, and the place that she's born, the place that she is buried. We find that with a bunch of guys, but only Sarah. Isaiah 51, verse 2 says, Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you, for he was but one when I called him. He, he was one person with no kids when God said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And I will bless him and multiply him. First Peter 3, 5 and 6. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do what is good and do not fear anything that is frightening. That's one of those verses that gets all messed up in our day and age. Like you just read that and people get ticked. What's the context when she trusts him? What's the context when she speaks of him as Lord? It's when God says to Abraham and to Sarah, no, I'm going to give you a son. Not, not your slave girl. I'm going to give you a son, a, a miraculous child of promise. And she says, I can't even imagine this. I can't even picture it. Is it possible that God would give my Lord? This one who I've bound myself to, who I am walking through life with. Would, would God possibly give him joy in his old age? And here's, in essence, ladies, what she is saying. I don't know how God can do it, but I'm with him. Wherever you go, I will go. If you say this is what God has called us to, I'm with you. Let's go. So the command to you ladies today, oh, this charge from God, not put your hope in your husband, put your hope in God. Put your hope in the, in the one who can make all things possible. Then it says, and don't fear anything that's frightening. doesn't mean that this world isn't scary. It means our God is able. And yet this passage is not about all things working out rosy. This passage actually bears the theme of hardship and loss. Sarah's death was a significant loss significant grief for abraham and there's none of this tv preacher nonsense of just believe hard enough and no bad things are ever going to happen to you it's not the only passage and just for the sake of time i'm not going to go too deep into this it's not the only bible passage that talks frankly about hardship and loss and heartache in fact the bible's full of accounts of that circumstances of people experiencing loss even as they trust in god just to give you a couple quick examples, uh, the book of Job and of Job himself. Again, found in the Old Testament, who loses everything, loses sons and daughters, loses property and possession, loses even his own health. And yet, despite all that, trusts in the goodness of God. 
does not curse God, does not turn away, but instead becomes a powerful example for you and I today to set our hope outside of ourselves. If we had time, we could look from Abraham and Job to Joseph, also experiencing horrendous loss. All the promises that God had made to him as a young man seem impossible when he's in the pit. Seem impossible when he's sold into slavery. Seem impossible when he's then thrown into prison. Yet in the midst of all of that, being falsely accused and falsely imprisoned, difficult circumstances, Joseph remains faithful to God and trusts in God's good plan for his life. Oh, friends, what a reminder that God is sovereign in all things. Even in justice, God is sovereign. These stories are a reminder that life is not easy, that you and I, like Abraham, will experience hardship and loss at some point in our lives. But they remind us more that God is sovereign over all things, that his plan for our lives can be trusted. We can entrust ourselves into his goodness, his promise of eternal life through faith in Christ. And therefore, we can have comfort. Therefore, we can have hope in the midst of our hardship and loss through faith in God, just like Abraham. You and I can know our lives are part of God's greater plan, not just for your peace and happiness and ease of life. No, God is working for your good, but he is working even more for his glory. The common thing, I mentioned this at the beginning, as a sojourner, as a traveler, is to take that body of your loved one back home. Back to Ur of the Chaldeans, where Abraham started this journey. To bury her among friends and family, in their family tombs. And yet, here's what he does. He says, God has called us to this place. We will live here, and we will die here. We are trusting more in the promise of God and the goodness of God than our circumstances around us. And that's why, kids, as you memorize today Ephesians 1, 11, and 12, you should be reminded, just like Abraham, God has set that inheritance in front of you. And that it's in Christ that we have obtained that inheritance. It's not because you lucked into it. It's not because you were good enough to get into it. It's because he predestined us according to his purpose and his plan. And he's the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. But here's why he does it. It's not because you are so good. It's not because you have great things in store for you. Although in Christ I believe those things are true. Here's why it is. Because we who are the first to hope, to see Christ, to trust in Christ to surrender to him, even as we saw exemplified in baptism today, that we might live and speak and think and be to his glory. Your being is to his glory. Your marriage is to his glory. Your life is to his glory and not your own. When we get that right, it enables us to walk through tough times, even as Abraham did, trusting God. I don't know how you're going to do it, but you're going to bring yourself glory through this. So many times we pray the wrong thing. God, I don't know how you're going to do it, but show me how this is good for me. Now, I think somehow in his sovereignty, God works that. 
where it is for our good and for his glory. But it would help our hearts if we would say, God, I don't know how you're going to do it, but show me how you're going to bring yourself glory through this moment. Help me see you and not me. Worship team, if you'd come on up. I want to encourage you as families, as part of your family worship. And again, family doesn't just mean parents with small children. If you have older children, sit down even more. Time is short, right? Sit down with them. Pour God's word into them. If your children have grown, sit down with your spouse. And let your marriage soak in God's word. If you are by yourself, soak your heart in God's word. One of the things that I have done is just put a reminder on my phone at 8 o'clock every single night. It doesn't matter where we are, at 8 o'clock my alarm's going off. And that doesn't mean, right, if you're in Applebee's, you're like, stop everything! The time has come, right? Man, when I was a teenager, I would have done that. Like, man, I'm glad we didn't have this back then. It does mean you need to set aside time, even when it's just you, to read God's word. Be diligent to hide God's word in your heart. So as, as a family, whatever that looks like for you, read together Ecclesiastes 3. But read not just the verse that we read to start with. Read 1 through 8. As God lists all these different times and seasons that come our way, and then have everybody who's part of the process pick one. Pick one of those times, one of those seasons listed in those verses and say, how do we as Christians honor and trust God in that season of life? What does it look like for us to honor God in a time of death? What does it look like for us to honor God in a time of war or peace or planting or harvest? And then read Genesis 23. Or at least talk back through it from this morning. As Abraham showed honor to his wife who has died, he shows honor to his neighbors, the Hittites. And then talk about how does being made in the image of God shape the way that we treat people? As believers, believing that all mankind is made in the image and the likeness of God, even those who don't believe in him, even those who reject in him, have been made in his image and likeness, and therefore we are commanded, it's not a good idea, we're commanded to treat them with dignity and honor and respect. How does that, how does that shape the way that we treat people? And then last, pray together. Ask God to help you trust him in no matter what season you're in. If we went around this room, we'd have all kinds of different seasons, different things, positives and negatives that you, that your family are walking through. Don't pray for grace that you need tomorrow. Pray for it today. God, give me the grace I need for today. What I'm walking in today, help me to trust in you. That's what we do at the end of every service as we consider God's word And then we shift our attention to God's table. The table of the Lord, as Jesus met with his disciples and he broke the bread and he said, this this bread represents my body that is given for you. He takes the cup of wine and he says, this cup is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Scripture says that every time we do that, every time we get together together, 
that we're to remember him, and that when we do, we're actually preaching. That's the word used in Scripture. We are preaching his death and resurrection until he comes again. We're doing exactly what Abraham did. I'm refusing to take her home. This is where God has promised. This is his body broken for me, even though my life still feels messed up. This is his blood shed for me. Therefore, though I still struggle with sin, I'm going to strive every day to put sin to death, and I'm going to trust in Christ more than myself. We come to the table and say, Jesus, my trust is in you. This world still feels broken and messed up, but until you return, I'm not going anywhere. As Autumn said, here I am. So Lord, we pray that for ourselves. We pray that God, not just our hearts and minds and will would decide to pray something like that. We pray by your Holy Spirit, would you quicken? Would you cause life and movement to come into our heart that sees the glory of your saving gospel and says, because I've seen it, I can see no other. Because I've seen it, I will trust myself. I will trust my family. I will trust my future into your good loving, saving hands. I just encourage you with your eyes closed, just between you and the Lord right now, especially if you're a believer in this room, and you've been walking through a really difficult place, maybe you need to pray that prayer right now. God, this has been rough. I do not see how this is going to work out, but I choose to trust you. Maybe attached to that, God, I repent of my sin. I haven't been trusting you. I've been trusting in me. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, man, right now is the time. Right now is the time to do exactly what Abraham did, which is look from where he was to what God said actually laid before him. Oh, the promise of salvation and redemption. The story you've probably heard a million times of Jesus coming, being born. We just celebrated it at Christmas. Living that perfect life, taking your sin, and then taking it to the cross. The very Son of God bearing your sin and your shame in your place. If you've never trusted in Him, friend, this is the morning. This is the time. It doesn't take anything special or fancy or magical. It happens right now between you and the king of creation as you cry out to him in your heart, Oh God, save me. I've trusted in myself. I've tried to save myself. And it has not worked. Open my eyes to see Jesus. Oh God, save me. God, I thank you that you hear those prayers. Thank you that your power to save is greater than our power to sin. Your power to keep us is greater than our power to stray. So as we come to your table, O Lord, would you remind us, even as we declare our hope in the finished work of Jesus upon the cross, remind us, O God, that we are his. That by faith, you enable us, you live within us live lives to honor you in all that we do. Amen. Thanks for joining our podcast. 
We pray that God would bless you and strengthen you through his word. If you'd like to find out more about EWC or give tithes and offerings in support of this ministry, visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co.